0: couple things for us to talk about thanks by the way for following us over here to thursdays we uh, after many years of wednesday wednesday afternoon afternoon some of you have perhaps followed us over here some of meeting us here for the very first time either way on purpose or by accident we're glad you're here i'm glad you're here you I'm glad you're here. Your dog is glad you're here. Sometimes, based on what you may or may not learn from this program, even your neighbors or your veterinarian are glad you're here. Anyway, we try to uh, bring you the best of the best and the latest and the newest and the most informative and uh, keep it coming. Keep it fresh keep it interesting and keep it engaging each week. All right. I've been thinking about uh, the overflow, uh, busy summer ahead of lots and lots of dogs uh, in my training classes, lots and lots of contacts um, and what seems like an endless supply Of new dogs, Uh, and I might want to get back to that a little bit later because those numbers are sometimes a little bit preoccupying. But let's take the long, the long road around back to the idea of population or overpopulation, consumers, all that sort of thing. Because I want to talk a little bit about what I think might stand between excess dog numbers the challenges faced by rescue and sheltering um, the challenges faced by animal control the number of dogs out running loose uh, seems to pick up in the summertime the escape artists the uh I don't know the generally untrained who don't come when they're called um and are challenged to return to their owners and uh in some neighborhoods are chronically escaping and running loose as I am told by some of my dog training students who live in those neighborhoods. Anyway, uh, what stands between a more sustainable model of dog ownership or a more responsible, healthier notion? You're gonna be surprised when I tell you it's training. so let's talk about that uh, I want to share with you uh, some observations by one of our favorite bloggers his name is he goes by the terrier man you've heard him heard about him on this program before he popped up a clever little blog post the other day He's—he if you think that we are sometimes a little bit much talking about the politics of dog ownership here on K9360 um the Terrier Man makes us look like we are just practicing. He, the the author behind the Terrier Man blog post, is himself a policy political policy wonk, I guess you would say. And he lives in D.C. He's a character, um, and he likes to he likes to provoke. So, let's see what you think about what he had to share the other day about what he called the Disney dog training and a contrived controversy. So he wants us to know that it was 61 years ago when Walt Disney filmed a movie called Big Red. And Big Red featured a showbred Irish setter that wanted to hunt and a contrived crisis about dog training. A crisis that involved the perspectives of an older English speaking Canadian man, played by Walter Pigeon, and a younger French speaking orphan who wanted to teach the dog using, quote, gentler methods. This Big Red was a book before it was a film. In fact, I remember reading that book um, when I was a kid. I checked it out of the library at Longfellow Elementary School in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, but I think I only read it once or twice. Um, lots of books, animal books, dog books on those shelves and I read every single one of them All right, they were right next to the Marguerite Henry books and those were about horses and I read those too you probably did too so the movie begins at a dog show at the Montreal Kennel Club where Big Red wins first prize and Walter Pigeon's Kennel Man is instructed to spend as much as $5,000 to acquire Big Red terrier man says that's a cash equivalent of over $35,000 in today's adjusted for inflation dollar wow in the next scene there's an improbable situation this is terrier man saying this is improbable i'm not entirely sure how improbable it is but he says A show dog is acquired by a shooting dog trainer, shooting dog man, and the shooting man with the show dogs also has many breeds rather than specializing in just one, which doesn't sound improbable to me at all, but we'll bear with this here. So then we get introduced to the orphan, dressed in beautiful clothes, and uh, according to Terrier Man, wearing too much makeup, who... Sort of slurs his way through some grade school French. Welcome to the wonderful world of Disney. So finally, we learned that in just one month after being acquired, Big Red is supposed to go to the Westminster Kennel Club dog show in New York City, where, if he wins, he will be the best dog in North America, perhaps in the whole world. And his cash value will then double. As the movie rolls forward, we see the horrors of aversive training techniques. Example, Walter Pigeon cuffing the dog under the jaw, ostensibly so that the dog will hold its head unnaturally high in the show ring. Of course, if you've ever shown a dog, you know that doesn't work. But right, you're going to create other problems. Just saying... But this is Disney. We know what Disney's all about. The boy, of course, is shocked. He's uh, sad to see his dog abusively trained in this way. But Walter Pigeon explains, setting up the essential conflict of the movie, that a dog is an animal. He is governed by conditioned reflexes. Dogs are not people. They do not have human reactions. And the only way to handle them is with a firm voice and a tight leash. Walter Pigeon then goes on to explain to the orphan that Big Red is a bench dog and that his kind are not used for any practical purposes anymore. Again, ostensibly because they are bred for their looks rather than for their ability to work. This little scene is designed to reinforce our dislike of the older man who has just said that he bought a useless dog at an extravagant price solely to make money and this obviously is the antithesis of good red-blooded American values and besides Big Red by golly he is not useless Terrier Man interrupts himself to say welcome to the wonderful world of Disney where every story is a morality tale the movie takes obvious plot twists and turns as it progresses with the poor orphan boy somehow becoming an expert dog trainer in less than a month now there's a miracle and the fellow with expensive shotguns and a kennel full of dogs somehow still not knowing his uh, knee from his elbow that's not exactly what the terrier man says But the FCC says, I can't repeat his language here, so I'll let you fill in. Um, And yes, there is the obligatory run-in with a mountain lion where Big Red and his buddy, the orphan boy, save the day. Terry Mann wants us to know that what's interesting about this story from the historical point of view is that it shows just how long this battle between, quote, abusive trainers and gentle trainers has been going on the infamous dog training wars the stuff of a thousand or more social media debates people lose friends trainers receive death threats i think i spoke to you about this a couple weeks ago when i mentioned a podcast where trainers ostensibly from either side of these camps come together in conversation and the loyal followers of the positive only trainer are the ones threatening their positive training hero death threats received can't make that stuff up no kidding um all right this, this fight's been going on for a long time in fact Working, men, working dog men like Montague Stevens were training food training dogs with food long before even the parents of Karen Breyer, Pryor or Victoria Stilwell were born food rewards as a dog training method says a terrier man are older than Jesus and it's hard to find a 19th century book on dog training that does not talk about the practice of using food Now, of course, you cannot train everything with a food reward, which is why God gave porcupines their quills and skunks their spray. The real world is full of consequences of all kinds, and they are not all positive, are they? The dog trainer who was actually used in the movie, the trainer used, hired to train the dog that would appear as Big Red in the movie. We got that right. Big Red's trainer was none other than William Keeler K-O-E-H-L-E-R who was often demonized as an abusive trainer simply because he did not shower his dogs with biscuits and then turn around to whine that they were now all too fat that's not to say that all of William Keeler's techniques would be saluted today That's for sure. He uses long lines. Yes. Still used. I use them all the time. Tossing a light chain at a dog. Yes. Uh, That's a technique he uses. That must be executed with exquisite timing. Um, You have to know exactly what you're doing. And uh, frankly, it's actually one aspect of the killer method that I think is... Maybe the most challenging for the majority of people that I work with, uh, the majority of the time. But Keeler also saluted the idea that with some dogs, a very powerful aversive done once was less cruel than mincing around with half measures for months and months on end. Was Keeler right? Well. The bull in the pasture that does not regularly test his electric fence says probably. But do most dog trainers really need to use strong aversives? The answer is no. Most dog owners are pet owners who will never see their dog running reliably. Trained dog running off leash. Plenty of dogs running off leash, just not the trained ones. And most pet owners are training dogs starting as puppies, we hope, before bad behaviors have become deeply ingrained because they were accidentally, inadvertently, or unintentionally rewarded for years. Keeler, Bill Keeler, of course, did run his trained dogs off leash. And unlike so many in the world of dog training, he did not start by training fat suburban dogs owned by lasers, owned by owners who were too lazy to walk them. So, Terry Mann says, like so many dog trainers of his era, Keeler started off in the military in World War II, where the dogs acquired were almost all large adults and given, or you could read that as abandoned, to the military because they often already had discipline and temperament issues. Captain Haggerty used to talk about this. He was training dogs on the East Coast when Keeler was training them on the West Coast and at roughly about the same time. And yet, in the military, a dog that does not obey a command can cost lives, both human and canine. And to this day, the United States military uses very strong aversives for certain parts, not all, but certain parts of its training regimen. When a bomb-detecting dog is told to stop, cease, this is not something the dog takes as a suggestion. And a dog that barks while on patrol can kill an entire platoon. Yep, most military dogs, working police canines, will work for their Kong. For, their, for a toy or for a ball or other small rewards but these dogs have also learned that there are certain never acts as in never ever and that some of those such as barking on patrol may be counter to their instincts right? I talk sometimes to parents in my classes about never acts especially when they tell me Well, we do try to tell the children to be fair to the dog and not pull on their ears or climb on them or get in their face or run in their presence, but the kids won't listen. Hmm. I remain convinced that every parent has some set of thou shalt never acts that they impart to their children. Thou shalt never dart into the street Thou shalt never play in the knife drawer. Thou shalt never poke sharp things into electrical outlets. And thou shalt never interact inappropriately with the dog needs to be on that list as well. Because when, well, it only takes a minute for something really bad to happen. And the consequences for the dog and for the kid can be pretty tragic, for sure. Okay, back to Big Red. The year that Big Red came out, Bill Keeler published the Keeler Method of Dog Training, which became a staple for AKC obedience competitors. A variation of the Keeler Method of Dog Training was brought to television in the late 1970s by Barbara Woodhouse, who featured basic Keeler methods in her own book, No Bad Dogs. Some of you remem- may remember Barbara Woodhouse and her sensible shoes, her sensible skirt and her crisp-pressed collared blouse invoking her dog training students and their wookies. And I can still hear that little sing-songy voice. I wonder if I can find her on YouTube. Wookiees. All right, that was Barbara, Barbara Woodhouse. There was a guy out of Wichita named Dave Dykman who created an infomercial that came along in the early 1990s where he was going to teach you how to train your dog and you had to buy his DVD um, or CD, I can't remember which came first and a flip chart that you could take into the field and he plagiarized a big chunk of Keeler. Um, sometime I'll have to tell you the story of David Dykeman and how that came to be uh, and then what happened to him in the end it's uh, not exactly the movie of the week but kind of anyway most people who opine about keeler today have never actually read a keeler book have no idea that he trained dogs in hollywood uh or that he trained dogs for this movie which was big red was really about not abusing dogs and not training dogs in abusive ways when folks do look to defame keeler they do so by quoting from the very end of the book of just one of the books, and leaving out the fact that this section is clearly labeled as the one that is only to be consulted when all else has failed and the next stop for the dog is the gas chamber. Death before discomfort? That's the rallying cry of a lot of purely positive dog trainers today who are only too willing to declare a dog untrainable if they cannot get it to change its ways with nothing more than a couple of cubes of cheese. Did William Keeler prance around in a dominatrix outfit while showering dogs with biscuits and screaming at their owners? No, but neither do most sensible trainers. Bill Keeler was a balanced trainer. He knew dogs needed exercise, as can be seen in the movie, and that for a working dog, there were few more powerful forces at work than the code that explodes, as can be seen when Big Red pings on birds when he's out in the field with the orphan boy keeler also knew in the real world of lead dog work a dog that obeyed only some of the time has a higher than acceptable chance of ending up dead that's still true today when the dog is an explosive whether the dog is an explosive detection dog in the army a police dog in detroit or a companion dog that escapes the yard in lincoln nebraska Bill Keeler worked with dogs for 50 years, was employed by Walt Disney for 20 of those years, and over the course of his life, life, he trained more than 25,000 dogs, according to his his obituary. Compare that record with nearly anyone else, and you are likely to find his credentials and experience without peer. Does that mean that you have to train your dog the Keeler way? Of course not, (laughs) right? Right. Of course not. You can train your dog any way you want. But do everyone a favor, yeah? Admit that William Keeler had a long and remarkable career training very happy dogs, as did other Hollywood dog trainers, such as Red Weatherwax, the trainer of Lassie, and that William Keeler was dealing with a lot of dogs that were not Labrador retrievers, a lot of dogs that were not baby puppies and a lot of dogs which required a performance standard a little bit higher than, well, sometimes he'll do it if he feels like it and I have this toy or a chunk of cheese, right? And I suggested to you when we started that I thought this had to do with with population, overpopulation, consumption of dogs, and perhaps the notion that people who train their dogs consume fewer dogs over their lifetime. If the goal of training is to teach a dog to keep its home and to teach a home to keep its dog, right? Um, I mean, back in the 70s, not long after Keeler's work became visible and prominent, Prominent when we were all still training using Keeler methods. Uh, The major humane businesses like HSUS and ASPCA had a problem Um, the overpopulation, and humane societies needed to differentiate themselves from the county dog pound. I don't know how well they succeeded in that, but they decided to sell a solution. Uh, which became Pediatric Spay and Neuter. And uh, I know that happened here in Lincoln. Bob Downey told me once that they started doing Pediatric Spay and Neuter when they realized they were getting dogs in intake who were the offspring of dogs that they had placed on spay-neuter contracts that new owners simply weren't honoring. Um, Spay-neuter... Pediatric spay, and neuter has had no effect on the overall population of dogs and cats. Uh, we don't really know about population problems because these businesses don't, or um, shelters don't keep numbers. And if they do keep numbers, they don't share them. Uh, the Pet Food Institute has some dependable numbers on populations. They argue that it, that, because uh, they're in the business of knowing, needing to know that the population rises annually between two and 3% and has done so for the last 50 years. Spay and neuter has increased by many times over, but the two to 3% growth has not changed. And uh, that prompts us to ask where we look for a solution to all these dogs and cats. I am not opposed to neutering dogs and cats. Heavens, no, right? You can do that, Um But I think what's going to do more to impact overpopulation is, I think, better breeding practices, which is a story for a different day, but also training your dog and consuming fewer dogs, right? People who keep their dogs for 14 years consume fewer dogs over their lifetime. And people who have trained dogs consume fewer dogs because there's no need to, right? They're not turning a dog in due to behavior problems, popping another one out, crossing their fingers and helping things turn out differently each time, right? So that's my attempt to bring that back around to full circle Um, and bring us a little bit of uh, insight and adventure from the terrier man who's always good for exactly that insight and adventure. And I can tell as I watch the little numbers tick by here that we are just about out of time. So... Thanks for hanging out with us on K9 360 on this lovely little Thursday afternoon. Thanks for being here with us on KZUM all the rest of the week, too. This is a special place, and it's made special because of you. Because of your listening ear, because of your generous gifts when we need them, uh, because of your attendance at events. How about that Stransky lineup, huh? It's going to be a good summer good summer of hanging out with friends listening to music and bringing your trained dog to outdoor spaces where trained dogs are welcome right okay you guys that's it for me I'll slide out of this chair leave it to the uh, Thursday evening oh there's more to come you know there always is so stick around and uh, join us back here next week for more K9360 I'm KZUM and KZUM HD the coolest radio station in the world. See you soon take care.